This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, The David Feldman Show, The David Pakman Show, Counterspin, and The Jimmy Dore Show. And a note of caution about the potentially flashback-inducing nature of today's episode for any listeners suffering from post-traumatic stress brought on by eight years of the Bush administration. It's the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War this week, and there's no cause for celebration, just for mourning and self-reflection. This foolish war of aggression by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz, which was sold to us on a chain of lies, came at a huge cost. Almost 4,500 young American men and women were killed, almost 32,000 were injured, and hundreds of thousands came back home with psychological trauma. On the Iraqi side, anywhere from 150,000 to over 1 million people were killed, and millions more were made homeless. On top of that, the country's been torn by ethnic strife between Sunnis and Shiites that was almost non-existent before the war. The cost to the U.S. Treasury has been astronomical, approaching $3 trillion, and Republicans have the gall to complain about the national debt. One amazing and troubling thing about the Iraq War is the total lack of accountability for the disaster. Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld all have published their memoirs and gone on their book tours and given the most self-serving accounts. But by the standards of Nuremberg, they are war criminals. It shouldn't be too much to expect them to be tried for those crimes. And the fact that it is says a lot about us. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Contemplating how to go about marking the 10-year anniversary of the illegal invasion and occupation that this country engaged in um, 10 years ago, there are so many facets of this. One, of course, sort of the the horrific state of Iraq at this point, um, the tremendous cost in terms of of lives, both nearly 5,000 uh, U.S. military personnel, another uh, four to 5,000 U.S. contractors, uh, not all of whom were mercenaries. Um, the, at the minimum, at the minimum, 130,000 innocent Iraqi lives. I'm not even talking, I'm not talking about um, so-called insurgents or Iraqi military, innocent Iraqi lives. Those figures are the most conservative. They're the ones from our government. The displacement of nearly 4 million refugees over the course of these 10 years, half of which more or less internally displaced the other half, which uh, refugees outside of uh, Iraq. The destabilization of that country, the leaving of their political order in uh, complete disarray in many respects. Um, the, it, it, is, it is really hard to sort of digest all of it. And so it, it's my intention to focus on on a very narrow slice of that. Uh, but uh, before we do, I want to remind you, and this is going to be sort of uh, painful, but I want to just remind you of how this war started with a shock and awe campaign. Ten years ago to the day where with an enormous amount of force, we bombed the hell out of uh, uh, Baghdad, uh, killing who knows how many Iraqi civilians at the time. 
And uh, this is how it launched. Forgive me for reminding you of this, uh, but um, it's 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 the least um, that we can do. Here it is. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well placed. The enemies you confront will come to know your skill and bravery. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. In this conflict, America faces an enemy who has no regard for conventions of war or rules of morality. Saddam Hussein has placed Iraqi troops and equipment in civilian areas attempting to use innocent men, women, and children as shields for his own military, a final atrocity against his people. I want Americans and all the world to know that coalition forces will make every effort to spare innocent civilians from harm. A campaign on the harsh terrain of a nation as large as California could be longer and more difficult than some predict and helping Iraqis achieve a united, stable, and free country will require our sustained commitment. Yeah, um, nearly 10 years of commitment. Um, and uh, just to go down, understand that literally in the days, if not hours, before this shock and awe began, the United States informed the UN that you must get your weapons inspectors who had been there for several months out of the country. These weapons inspectors found nothing. Zero. To the point where they were making public requests of the US government, tell us where these things are that you supposedly are aware of. We have searched everywhere and found nothing. No weapons of mass destruction. Nothing that indicates the peace of the free world or the entire world would rest on your uh, invading this country. That is the thing that I think we forget the most at that time. Was that there were weapons inspectors on the ground. And... Those of us who were saying that this is a, an unnecessary war, this is a war of choice, there is no imminent threat to the United States, the least that could be done is simply allow the weapons inspectors to continue their work there. But there was a fear, I think, in the administration that that, in fact, would be problematic. That if they were allowed to stay there, the will to go to war in this country would diminish because it would be clear there was no threat. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. 
It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. Some recent polling on the 10-year anniversary of the Iraq War. We invaded with our shock and awe on March 19th of 2003. Was the Iraq War worth fighting? And American people think clearly that it was not. So, for example, a, a new HuffPost YouGov poll says 54% say not worth fighting the Iraq War, 24% uh, say worth fighting, and 22% are not sure. Uh, they say, give me another 10 years, then I'll come back to you and give you a decision. All right, well, but clear majority saying... Uh, not worth fighting. In fact, if you ask, uh, in, in a Gallup poll, it was even clearer, 53 to 42 saying, clearly a mistake. Iraq war was a mistake. Okay? Uh, were the benefits of the Iraq war not worth the cost? In an ABC News Washington Post poll, 58 to 38, clearly not worth the cost. Now, I'm going to show you why they're not worth the cost. Uh, number of U.S. Uh, soldiers killed, troops, I should say. 4,488 service members killed. And by the way, uh, very often this is neglected. Also, 3,400 contractors are killed. So, actually, the number dead are much larger than people normally report on our side. Wounded veterans, well, 32,221 of them in the Iraq war. Now, how about civilians on the Iraqi side? That would be 134,000 Iraqi civilians killed, according to a recent report by Brown University. Was it worth it? Gee, I don't know. What, what, what the hell, what, what, what did we get out of it? I'm okay, so let's, first of all, I know what we lost. Not only did we lose all those good people, whether they were the U.S. troops, or they were the Iraqi civilians, civilians, but we also lost a tremendous amount of money. Same Brown University report, estimated cost of the war so far, $2.2 trillion. When you add interest and the continuing bills that we have to pay, over the next 40 years, that can go up to 6 trillion dollars wasn't worth it well what do we get well we found the weapons of mass destruction right and of course as you all know there were no weapons of mass destruction well saddam was about to invade us right nope not about to invade us at all not even close that's a comical idea remember when Condoleezza rice said it our first warning sign might come in the form of a mushroom cloud mushroom cloud like he had nuclear weapons he barely threw his slippers at us the problem wasn't saddam hussein and his uh, weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. The problem is when you went to go occupy the country for oil, then the people of Iraq said, hey, you know what, we're not interested in that. That was a different problem that we created. How, well, was Saddam Hussein working with uh, Al-Qaeda to do 9-11? Absolutely not. Every single report on that has proven conclusively, and in fact, even Bush has admitted, yes, of course, he didn't do 9-11. We never said he did 9-11. We just kind of implied it with every other sentence that we spoke and sometimes flat out said it but now they admit yes it was a 9-11 either so what in the world did we get for it now when Dennis Kucinich said that it might have been the oil near the beginning of the war he was called a fool and a demagogue by even so-called liberal pundits on the Washington Post Richard Cohen said that and he said, thank God that Richard Pearl, who's a neocon warmonger who helped start the Iraq war, was there on Meet the Press to answer Kucinich and to call him a liar to his face. So, well, obviously it wasn't oil. What's interesting, though, is that David Frum, who was one of the top neocons, who was in the Bush administration, who wrote the line, the axis of evil that Bush delivered, says this curious admission, quote, in 2002, Chalabi joined the annual summer retreat of the American Enterprise Institute near Vail. Now, Chelby's the guy, of course, who the, the neocons wanted to put in as the new leader of Iraq. He and Cheney spent long hours together contemplating the possibilities of a Western-oriented Iraq, an additional source of oil, an alternative to U.S. dependency on an unstable-looking Saudi Arabia. Hmm. 
So maybe it was the oil. Now remember 2002, well before the war in 2003. And there's Cheney meeting with a guy that they believe they're going to install as a puppet. It didn't work out that way. Talking for hours about the Iraqi oil. Gee, I wonder what it was about. Well, then you go to Chuck Hagel, who happens to be our Secretary of Defense right now. Back in 2007, as a Republican senator from Nebraska, he said, quote, People say we're not fighting for oil. Of course we are. They talk about America's national interests. What the hell do you think they're talking about? We're not there for the figs. Now, that's about the most honest comment I've ever seen on Iraq. That's why the Republicans tried to block him to be Obama's Secretary of Defense, because they're like, that guy's actually honest. How about Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, back then? Quote, I am saddened that it is politically inconvenient to acknowledge what everyone knows. The Iraq war is largely about oil. All right, well, those are outsiders. They didn't necessarily make the decision on the ground. The head of Central Command in charge of Iraq, our General John Abizet, he wouldn't say that, right? Quote, of course it's about the oil. It's very much about the oil. And we can't really deny that. Well, that would seem to settle it. By the way, in the 10th anniversary of the Iraq war today, bombings lit up Iraq, 65 dead, many more injured. The bombings have never really stopped. We just stopped paying attention to them. The civil war in Iraq has never really quite stopped. Yes, it's gotten a little better than the absolute bloodbath back in 2006. But it's not over. The Sunnis still hate the Shias, the Shias still hate the Sunnis, and neither one of them likes the Kurds. We stirred that pot up, and what do we get? And by the way, if we had gotten their oil for U.S. companies, what would that have meant? Would you have just gotten the oil? Would your gas be cheaper? No, you wouldn't have gotten the oil. Our companies that fund these politicians would have gotten the oil and the profits. And the one set of companies that are clearly much more profitable after the war than before the war, the defense contractors. And people like Halliburton, who at the time had the subsidiary KBR, which got billions of dollars in no-bid contracts. And of course, everybody knows who ran Halliburton. That was the vice president who schemed about oil before the war with Ahmed Chalabi and wound up pushing President Bush and the rest of the country, willingly so with Bush and a lot of the other Republicans, into that Iraq war that wound up being a disaster for us, that killed us, our troops, our treasury. And now the Republicans, of course, turn around and say, oh, we have no money. Why? Because Dick Cheney spent it all in Iraq. Was it worth it? You'd have to be mental to think that it was. You'd have to be insane to think that. Or you'd have to be a defense contractor or an oil man or both Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. North Korea launches an attack on South Korea. Killing two, injuring 15. Say, isn't this the same North Korea that sank a South Korean warship earlier this year, killing 46 sailors? It's a good thing North Korea's leader isn't enriching uranium or starving his own people. Oh, wait, he is. And he does. Sounds like somebody's itching for a fight. But our Muslim president just doesn't have the courage to scratch that itch. Call your congressman and tell him Korean is one silent E away from Koran. And you want war. Brought to you by Halliburton. As long as you can pay the bill, we'll keep the war going for you.
Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. We are almost to the day, 10 years from the beginning of the occupation and invasion of Iraq, also known as the Iraq War. Now, you'll remember uh, very shortly after, March 20th, 2003, George W. Bush stood on an aircraft carrier under a mission-accomplished banner and essentially declared victory, indicating that combat operations, major combat operations, had ended. Of course, an overwhelming number of both the civilian and American troop deaths happened after that point, after mission accomplished, after major operations had ended. And, of course, we can go back and say, well, in the long term, even though we were misled, apparently more and more deliberately, about the existence of weapons of mass destruction, which did not exist, we were misled about the connection between Iraq and Saddam Hussein and the terrorist acts of 9-11. Maybe it was still worth it. Maybe it was still worth it because we did topple Saddam, and long term, we reduced the violence in that country. And today we got news that a suicide bomb has killed 57 people in Iraq. Um, actually, 57, some estimates say as high as 65 people. And um, it was the deadliest day in Iraq since September 9th, when insurgents unleashed an onslaught of bombings and shootings across the country, and that left close to 100 people dead. And the symbolism here, I, I can't ignore the symbolism, which is that it really makes us wonder, well, what is different in Iraq now? Yes, Saddam Hussein is gone. Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. All else being equal, most people would prefer Saddam Hussein not be in power. But the question of was it worth the trillions of dollars and counting, by some estimates, too. By other estimates, George W. Bush hid up to several other trillions of dollars in costs in different ways. Uh, was it worth the thousands of U.S. lives and at least tens of thousands of civilian lives. Some people say that actually that it goes into six figures, although those are not um, those numbers are in question. But close to it, if not over six figures, was it worth it? Most people believe the answer is no. A majority of Americans believe the answer is no to that, and of course, a majority of individuals in most most countries believe it was not worth it. Majority of Republicans still does think, not by a, a huge majority, but they still do believe it was worth going into Iraq in the first place. What's the best reason, Lewis? for your opinion. In other words, what's the strongest argument that makes you decide it was or it was not worth it? Hard to say in the long term. I mean, there is certainly the selfish reason of, uh, you know, protecting oil, right? Uh, I don't know what the long-term effects of that are really going to be on our yeah, country. Well, the cheap oil we were promised never happened. So that was, uh, that was BS. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, 10 years from now, um, if we're paying the same price for oil... Um, you know, if this war had not happened, maybe we'd be paying double. Yeah, but that just, I mean, statistic. I understand what you're saying. You're playing devil's right. advocate. But, right. Natan, we know statistically that it the, the access to oil from going into Iraq is not something that is influencing prices. And, by the way, 10 years from now, we'd better be, be close to being off of the stuff. I mean, or, or we're going to be in, in a seriously disturbing place, Natan. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that when we say that the country might be better off than it would have been if we hadn't gone in, assuming that's even true, there are plenty of places in the world where, um, you know, for humanitarian reasons, it would make sense to get rid of their dictators and engage in nation building. But that's not what this was. If that was what this had been, then you probably would have seen an international United Nations-backed plan by all of Europe and Canada to do this uh, in a sort of international way. That's not what this was. This was framed yeah. as self-defense, and that was total BS. It had no basis in fact. And as a matter of fact, that's the reason that our government gave for going in. It wasn't for the humanitarian reason. Ultimately, I think this was 
uh, a terrible decision. There's no way it was worth the money we put into it, the lives we lost, and now the un the instability uh, there as a result of the war. And I hope my my hope now is that this is remembered when thinking about potential future military engagements. Although history suggests going back now to Vietnam and uh, uh, to, to a number of other decisions that were made that we don't necessarily learn from our military mistakes. Not at all. The 10th anniversary of the start of the Iraq War was noted throughout the media, and since the war has come to be in some ways defined by the media's failure, those remembrances can be a little awkward. And MSNBC morning host Joe Scarborough decided on his March 19th show that it was important to note the Democrats and major media outlets that he considered just as guilty of rushing into war as George W. Bush, as he lectured viewers how short our memory is. Well, that's not true for all of us. Some of us remember that Joe Scarborough was one of the loudest Iraq War supporters. Not only that, weeks after the invasion started, he decided the war was over, and it was time for the critics and anti-war activists to apologize. I'm waiting to hear the words, I was wrong, he sneered in April of 2003. Quote, their wartime predictions were arrogant, they were misguided, and they were dead wrong. Close quote. Maybe all of this escaped Scarborough's memory. Viewers might have had the same thought seeing the PBS NewsHour mark the anniversary with an appearance by New York Times reporter Michael Gordon. He co-authored the famously wrong story about Iraq's aluminum tubes. In either case, both men should be thankful that they work in an industry that apparently doesn't much believe in accountability. Let's talk about the 10-year anniversary of the Iraq War. Now, if you were watching television, uh, the television news people, they had on a bunch of people coming on to talk about the 10-year anniversary. By the way, what's the traditional gift for that? Is it C4? Crow? Is it uh, bronze or C4? or? Oh. Uh, go ahead. I bought a yellow cake for the anniversary. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm sorry it took so long. How <laughs> did to say that? But, you know. This is um, Michael O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institute. Traditionally a very liberal think well, tank. Traditionally a left-leaning think yep. tank. I wouldn't say it very little. I would say left-leaning, and the reason I say that is because the big. I would say the biggest issue of uh, this generation, which would be the Iraq War, they were wrong on. So they had on this guy Michael O'Hanlon, who was a big cheerleader for the Iraq War when it first happened, from the Brookings Institute, right. and he he bought all that garbage. And so they asked him about, hey, looking back, uh, what do you think about uh, the what? What are your thoughts? And here's what he and, said: You know, I'm not a huge fan of most of the folks from the Bush administration myself, uh, but I do think that someone like Dick Cheney did not fundamentally seek to expand American influence, you know, imperialistically or go for big oil profits for his companies. No, that this guy's a professional. He he works at a think tank. He's paid to think, and mm. this is what he thought. Ah, mm. 
I don't think Dick Cheney was trying to get any oil money. <laughs> wow, this turns out I got the, uh, I, I think I know who's in the running for world shittiest detective. <laughs> I think it might be Michael O'Hanlon. Here we go, he's got more to say. I think he was genuinely worried about what someone like Saddam <laughs> yeah. Hussein could do in power. Now you could say... Yes, he was, he was, he was worried. Who knew what Saddam Hussein would do in power? He'd only been president of Iraq for 24 years. <laughs> It was a wild card. <laughs> yes. And it was a, it was just a coincidence that Cheney was employed by Halliburton, which just happened to get all the oil contracts. It's got nothing to do with the Okay. <laughs> just really worried about what what, what, Cheney, what Saddam Hussein would do with the weapons that Cheney gave him. Yeah, well, what, yeah. Cheney was genuinely worried, Robert, uh, that Saddam Hussein would use those imaginary nuclear weapons of his to start an imaginary war, so we beat him to it. That's <laughs> that was what our happened. imaginary war. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say Cheney's fears were probably overblown since Iraq had no nuclear bombs, just thousands of insurgents trying to kill us. Okay, so here's he goes on. He's got more to say, this guy. He made the wrong call. You could say his fears were overblown, and I certainly do not agree with the way he talked about his concerns to the American people. I think. So you don't like the way he talked about the threat? You mean that, that he lied <laughs> about the threat, and you're against that, but his heart was in the right place. Is that what you're saying? That's what he's saying. <laughs> Okay, he goes on. There He's was got a more. hyping of the threat and a willingness to associate Saddam with 9-11, which was never justifiable. But I think that Cheney was motivated by a certain fear of what Saddam could do to that neighborhood, as opposed he, he was motivated by fear, so he was a coward and a liar who led us into a futile disaster. But it was a completely legitimate futile disaster, according to this guy. He was scared. Because he was scared. He really was afraid of him. He was really a scared. Now, the, the, the reason I'm playing this is because you hear a lot of people saying this, right? Especially on the right. This guy's on the left and he's saying it. Hey, you know, we have the best information. That is a lie. We now know that they lied so we can start a war because they wanted to take out Saddam Hussein since the first Gulf War. Right. This was all... They never thought that they had the weapons anyway. They knew they didn't. They were right. just like, what's the best lie we can use to sell? We all know this is true now. Wilkinson, the uh, Colin Powell's chief of staff, has said this, that they just lied. They made stuff up. It was uh, get Iraq. It had nothing to do with Afghanistan. There, wasn't, there weren't any good targets in Afghanistan. So my point is that this guy still gets paid at a liberal think tank, and he's couldn't be a worse thinker. It's like, how come I can't get that job? Obviously, you don't know, have to know your ass from a hole in the ground to be able to work at this think tank. Hey, I, I know my ass from the hole in the ground. Can I get that job? I sent this guy an email. I tried. I'm like, I would just like to ask you, like, you really, really, the worst detective in the history of detectives. Are, is no one else's outraged at this guy but, but me? I think they have to defend their crummy um, decisions and... Um, analyses at the time or else they're totally illegitimate right they have to say well we're still well we didn't know yeah rather than boy was i full of crap and they go well, i was i should i should give my pay back for those years i should give back all my pay because i no. totally screwed up no. i feel terrible and he's st he still this guy is such a good uh, thinker that he still thinks that dick cheney was on the up and up mm. these mm. guys were on the up and up you know just describing him uh, just using the word genuinely yeah, ever, yeah ever. genuine like, at all, when? genuine. When and we talked about this on the premium content last week about uh, that documentary on Dick Cheney and about how the guy who made the documentary said, uh, you know, I really, uh, you know, Dick Cheney was certain that you can't be weak in these situations, and mm -hmm. he was certain that you have to go to Dick Cheney was lying. He didn't have convictions that Saddam was a threat. He wasn't trying to save people's lives in America. He was just wanting to invade Iraq to fill the pockets of his crony capitalist friends. This is all this is about. Is there, yes. anybody disagree with what I said? Well, can I say two things? Sure. Then the, this is like um, Iran-Contra where it's like, if he honestly was sincere in his beliefs, then he's grossly incompetent. Yes. Okay. And the other thing that but for some reason no one is saying is Dick Cheney was never commander in chief. Right. He was not supposed to be leading us to war at all. Right. He was supposed to be sitting as president of the Senate and that's mm -hmm. it. Ceremonial position. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one wants to say that, by the way, the entire construct of this presidency was a violation of the Constitution. This guy, 
who gets paid to sit around and think about stuff has been thinking about this for 10 years. <laughs> and this is the best he has to offer. <laughs> He's been thinking about this for 10 years. If I spent 10 years thinking about something, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be this good at missing the point. He has failed. So they bring on, so then, this is on the same news show, so thank God. This is on MSNBC, by the way. They bring this guy on, on MSNBC, because I guess that even MSNBC has to tell you the BS half of the story before they tell you the real side of the story. They have to say, hey, see, this is the fake story that people tell you, and now they bring on Jeremy Scahill from The Nation to tell you the truth about what was actually happening. At, at Saddam's most brutal, he was considered an ally of the United States. Reagan's administration lifted him from the list of state sponsors of terror, uh, then sold him weapons that he in turn then used on Iraqi Kurds. Donald Rumsfeld uh, met with Saddam Hussein and gave him a pair of cowboy spurs as a gift from Ronald Reagan. I saw them when I went to the Saddam Museum in Baghdad a few months before the war started. I mean, the, the, these guys came to power, the neocons came to power with an agenda for regime change in Iraq, and on 9-11 they were salivating. General Hugh Shelton, who was chair of the Joint Chiefs at the time, told me that Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, all of these guys just started Iraq, Iraq, Iraq immediately at the first meeting after 9-11. And, and you know, the, the, the fact is that the, the, these guys had a mission to try to redraw the maps of the Middle East. That's a fact. And, and, and Dick Cheney did not invent the idea of the executive branch being a dictatorship when it comes to foreign policy in America. Unfortunately, President Obama has continued some of the things that Cheney and Rumsfeld and these guys uh, laid the groundwork for earlier. But, but my God, I mean, Cheney headed up Halliburton for the 1990s. He had oil on the mind all the time. And the irony is the U.S. isn't winning the oil in Iraq. Those guys failed at their own game, the, the neocons. They didn't even get the oil. Mm-hmm. Notice they, he, he never even once mentioned Bush. Because, right. Because Bush is just this hapless idiot sitting there taking orders from Rumsfeld. Yes, and Cheney. Cheney. Yeah, just a hapless <laughs> idiot. Up until about, I guess, 2005? But all these guys, like Bush yeah, and yeah. Rumsfeld and Cheney, they all were in the military, right? No, not none of them. Turns out, oh, George Bush was. He was in that champagne division. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't. He wasn't like uh, John Kerry. And and how many deferments did Cheney get? Cheney got five deferments, and because he, he said he had better things to do than fight in that war. And you know, it's not like he's John Kerry who went to Vietnam but got shot in the ass running away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was so. I just thought that was interesting because we've been hearing all that crap all this week from these, and and people are and they're just they're still employed, they're still as uh, as as you it's know a big the, to fail the pund all the pundits and politicians who told us ten years ago that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction they've all been punished with higher salaries and more airtime. Sounds like show business. <laughs> so Paul, where's Paul Wolfowitz? Because he went and worked for the World Bank. And yes, uh, he was the head of the World Bank. There's no wrong answers in this. There's no, matter no what you say, wrong it's answer. okay. That's hilarious. That's a great way to put it. All right. Next time I go to the World Bank, I'm going to steal one of their pens. <laughs> <laughs> Bastards. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There are still... Now, we had a conversation earlier in the program with John Judas about what it felt like to be... A, uh, within the Washington uh, Beltway media system and to oppose the war and to go to CIA conferences and uh, military institution conferences and find out that the, the people putting on these conferences wanted the press to cover how they think that this war should not take place. Uh, But lest you forget, there are still people who are not doing mea culpas, who do not uh, 
who are still basically what, uh, to coin a phrase, uh, or I should say to repeat a phrase coined by those uh, great uh, leaders who should be in shackles right now, uh, these are dead-enders. There are dead-enders, people who still, to this day, will go on and argue that Iraq was the right decision and everything uh, apparently worked out well or whatnot. And one of those people, I mean, of course, there's the Richard Pearls and whatnot who, who need to do this just because uh, then they must know they're being uh, intellectually dishonest and just dishonest and that they're liars, but they don't care. That's in their fabric. Uh, but there are some people who also do it maybe with the same sort of within the same moral vacuum, but they're just so stupid that it's actually enjoyable to listening. And Mark Boiling, Bowling or whatever that name Eric Bowling. Eric Bowling from Fox, uh, the, the, the Five, uh, is one of those people. And let's play that audio now. Eric, what do you think? Well, the, let's let's talk about what happened. The, the, let's remember that Saddam Hussein aligned his troops. He he, he took the border of Kuwait, and he was going to go into Kuwait. So it's not like this big speculation whether he's a bad guy or not. He was a bad, bad guy. guy. Then right. we he went did in, go into Kuwait. We, we, no, he didn't go into Kuwait. He lined him up, and then we went and did Desert Storm and stopped him. He let the Kuwaiti oil fields on fire, but he didn't never actually go into Kuwait to try and take the, the country down. He never got there. He decided to light the oil fields on fire. The point being... We had to take Saddam Hussein out. We had just been punched in the face with 9-11. The, the Afghanistan war was starting up. We had to do what we did. I think it was the smartest thing George Bush did. He restored confidence in America. Hey, let me just see if I can parse this. Because Saddam Hussein, 12 years earlier, had not invaded Kuwait, even though he actually had... Because he had not invaded Kuwait and was prepared to invade Kuwait, but actually did invade Kuwait, unbeknownst to Eric Bowling, therefore we got punched in the face in Afghanistan and George Bush, and so we had to do it, if I understand the argument correctly. This guy's so dumb, and he's corrected on the set, uh, presumably by one of the other Fox 5. No, he, did, he didn't Democrat. invade Kuwait. No, he didn't invade Kuwait, but he could have. And we got punched in the face. In Afghanistan. So, George Bush, best thing he ever did. <laughs> Eric Bowling is the same guy who we previously played a clip of saying how there were no terrorist attacks in Amer on American soil under George Bush. If this guy's going to lie and be a shill, the very least he can do is to just occasionally look up what he's talking about on Wikipedia. You know, just get the basics down. Unbelievable. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And for those of you who are planning anniversary parties, we now have as our guest, professional party planner, Patty Parsons. Patty, welcome. Thank you. I specialize in events that commemorate atrocities. I planned the Khmer Rouge rodeo that was held at the Chateau Marmont last year. And I organized the annual barbecue at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire Reenactment Society that they hold in Lower Manhattan. So I am just the person to consult if you want your Iraq War 10-year anniversary to be the huge success that the actual war wasn't. So, what are the basics for planning an Iraq War 10th anniversary party? Besides hubris? Well, first of all, make sure that on the invitations you print the exact address of the location of your party. Of course. Then hold your party at a completely different address. What? Why? Iraq was the wrong location to hold the war. So make sure your event is in the wrong place to have the party. What kind of food should you serve at an Iraq War 10th anniversary party? 
Well, the obvious choice is yellow cake. But I say, why not think outside of the American flag-draped box? I've come up with a recipe I call Quagmire Cupcakes. They're delicious, and they occupy your colon with no exit strategy. What flavor are they? That is classified. I'm not at liberty to say. Are there fun activities that you can plan for your party? Oh yes, charades are fun at any party, but particularly appropriate at an Iraq War-themed party. And you can make it extra enjoyable by giving misleading clues, so the person who gets the most facts wrong ends up the winner. Fun, huh? I guess. What about refreshments? Well, at an Iraq War-themed event of this sort, the most important thing about party planning is making sure your party is poorly planned. So what you want to do is serve beverages that you claim are tasty and refreshing, but are in fact toxic and poisonous. But then, aren't you making the guests at your party victims? You call them victims. I call them celebrants. <laughs> and then, when your guests are doubled over on the floor in excruciating pain, that's when you put up a mission accomplished banner and strut around like the kick-ass party giver and chief you are. But what are your guests going to think about you afterwards? Afterwards, they're going to have an acute case of post-traumatic fun syndrome. Listen. After Vietnam, everybody said, "Well, we're not going through that again." <laughs> But then everybody showed up in Iraq for Operation Enduring Awesome. Remember, those who don't learn the lessons of your last party are doomed to come to your next one. Well, party planner Patty Parsons, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Remember, life is a banquet, and most people are being systematically killed by brutal regimes and the so-called democracies that prop them up. Good night. There's chutzpah and then there's chutzpah in the second category. I give you Donald Rumsfeld, Bush's defense secretary and unreconstructed neocon. You'd have thought after the disaster he brought us in Iraq that Rumsfeld would have had the good sense to lay low on this, the tenth anniversary of that debacle. But no, the Donald took to Twitter, saying, "Ten years ago began the long, difficult work of liberating 25 million Iraqis. All who played a role in history deserve our respect and appreciation." Well, let's take a second to marvel at that note of self-congratulations and the demand that we bow before him—a demand that I refuse to obey, and I hope you refuse too, because he certainly did not liberate the up to one million Iraqis he killed, or the more than two million he turned into refugees, and he did not liberate the ones who were tortured by U.S. personnel at Abu Ghraib. And even today, two years after Obama ended our part in the Iraq War, the bombs still go off in Baghdad. As the country remains hopelessly divided, Donald Rumsfeld, who committed a war crime by launching this war and by overseeing the torture of detainees, has the most distorting mirror ever constructed. Maybe that's how he sleeps at night. Otherwise, it's a mystery to me. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. How do you sleep? How do you sleep? How do There's a man who is not appreciative of Don Rumsfeld、uh, and his Iraq War.、Uh, it is、uh, Thomas Young. Well, he's an Iraq War veteran, and you、uh, can understand why that he was not happy with Rumsfeld and specifically George W. Bush and Dick Cheney because、uh, he wrote them what he called his last letter. He got hurt really bad in Iraq. Now he had signed up right after 9/11. He wanted to go to Afghanistan and avenge the 3,000 people who had been killed on our soil. 
And he says in his letter, he was looking forward, and, he, and if he had gotten hurt this badly in Afghanistan, he would be proud, because at least he did what he set out to do. He was going to avenge the American citizens killed by al-Qaeda. But Thomas is smart enough to know that al-Qaeda had nothing to do with 9-11, and losing, uh, getting badly injured in uh, Iraq to the point where he is on the point of death now and is disabled, he says, well, that, of course, was not worth it. That was nothing but a pack of lies. In fact, let me quote the letter because it is dramatic. He says, quote, I write this letter on the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War on behalf of my fellow Iraq War veterans. I write this letter on behalf of the 4,488 soldiers and Marines who died in Iraq. I write this letter on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of veterans who have been wounded and on behalf of those whose wounds, physical and psychological, have destroyed their lives. I am one of those gravely wounded. I was paralyzed in an insurgent ambush in 2004 in Sadr City. My life is coming to an end, and I am living under hospice care. He then says, I write this letter, my last letter, to you, Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney. I write not because I think you grasp the terrible human and moral consequences of your lies, manipulation, and thirst for wealth and power. I write this letter because, before my own death, I want to make it clear that I, and hundreds of thousands of my fellow veterans, along with millions of my fellow citizens, along with hundreds of millions more in Iraq and the Middle East, know fully who you are and what you've done. You may evade justice, but in our eyes, you are each guilty of egregious war crimes, of plunder, and finally of murder, including the murder of thousands of young Americans, my fellow veterans, whose future you stole. Very powerful, obviously. Later in the letter, towards the end, he says, quote, We were used, we were betrayed, and we have been abandoned. And he ends the letter by saying, But mostly, I hope, for your sakes, that you find the moral courage to face what you have done to me and to many, many others who deserve to live. I hope that before your time on earth ends, as mine is now ending, you will find the strength of character to stand before the American public in the world, and in particular the Iraqi people, and beg for forgiveness. Now, it's one thing when I say the war in Iraq went badly, it's easy for me to say I'm a talk show host in the comfortable confines of a studio. It's another thing when a guy who fought there got paralyzed, and might now lose his life. He wants to end his life because he's in so much pain. He's got a unique way of doing it. Uh, he doesn't want to shoot himself, and but he's thinking of going to hospice care and, and ending his life there through not eating. I, I don't know if he can do that, and I hope he doesn't do that. And I hope we can find a way to help him. But he says he's in tremendous pain throughout, and he can't take it anymore. And as he says, look, it would have been one thing if he, this had happened in Afghanistan. That's what he signed up for. It's another thing to mislead us and to send us into that debacle in Iraq where they all of his fellow veterans lost their lives for no reason at all. Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. He had no weapons of mass destruction. And again, it's one thing for me to say it. It's another thing for a guy who's paralyzed on the edge of death to say it and say, what did you do this to me for? What did you do this to my friends for? Why did you take our honorable service and misuse it in this way? Basically, have you no conscience? And he knows the answer to that. Of course they don't have a conscience. But it's important for others to hear what really happened in Iraq and why Bush and Cheney did it and how they should be embarrassed and they should apologize, not just to as he points out, to our veterans, but also to the civilians. Hundreds of thousands of civilians killed in Iraq. And it was powerful that he included that in his letter as well. But then to the whole country for the blood and treasure lost and spilled for no good reason, for their avarice. High time they got a letter like this. I hope they at least have the courage to read it.
Hi, Jay. Uh, my name is Suzanne Early. I'm actually calling from Australia. I agree 1,000% with Dan Savage and Tim Minchin. I love Tim Minchin, um, who is an Australian, by the way, about the Pope, about protecting child rapists, about not sending people to jail just because they happen to work for the church, about not sending people to jail even though they've committed these horrific acts and helped cover them up. I was raised a missionary's kid. I believe in stuff. I refuse to be a part of any organized religion for some of these reasons. Um, Hypocrisy is high on my list. Um, but I do think it's a little bit throwing out the baby with the bathwater to say that everyone who wears that label is guilty because the Pope's an ass. Now, having said that, if you are prepared to wear that label and you are not prepared to stand up in public and say, that man's actions make my label seem horrific and I do not want him associated with my label so I want to make sure that whatever he's doing gets dealt with appropriately and that he is seen to be ostracized by the rest of the people who wear his label and that's not happening I don't agree with Catholicism as a as a basis for faith uh, I don't agree with the concept of the Pope or infallibility or a lot of the, that other stuff but there are a lot of Catholics who are doing a lot of good things, but if they are not standing on the rooftops and screaming about child sex scandals and the priests being the allegations and being covered up, people being moved around to get them out of jurisdictions, the old Pope getting to live out the rest of his life in a cloistered convent in the Vatican so that he never has to face charges. If you're not screaming from the rooftops about that and you still want to call yourself a Catholic, then I have an issue with you. So anyway, that's my thoughts. Thank you. Love the show. I did. This is Molly uh, from Eureka, Missouri, calling regarding the podcast, the last two on the Pope and Catholicism. Um, I am a progressive Catholic, and it is really difficult to be a progressive Catholic. But as far as the comments that were made about leaving the church and and if you don't leave the church um you're basically as bad as the people who are the pedophiles i think that i don't leave the church for the same reason i don't leave the united states of america i disagree with like a, most of the politicians at least in some aspect but i do believe in the foundation of what america was all about in the same way i disagree with a lot of what the Catholic Church says. I basically disregard most everything they say about sex, and I instead, I'm, I'm focused on what the foundation is, and that is the teachings of Jesus Christ, um, which pretty much, I don't know that he ever really mentioned sex very much. Most of what he is saying is about the poor and about how we really should not be comfortable with all of our opulence. And so I'm actually hopeful with this Pope because he seems to be making some of those people who are in the hierarchy uncomfortable because he isn't shying away from the opulence. I know it's hard to shy away from the opulence in the Sistine Chapel, but I think that he is, you know, he's going to be doing Holy Thursday Mass in a youth detention facility. That is extremely encouraging to me, and hopefully we will, you know, veer back toward what we're supposed to be about. That being said, I can't help but say something about the child sex abuse issues. I don't know how we recover from that. I'm hoping that he might have some something good to say, or at least can stop making things worse because that seems to be the direction we're going in is constantly making things worse but yes I, I stay because of the fundamentals just like I do believe in the fundamentals of America um, and our constitution even if I disagree with a lot of the people who are in power thank you I do love the show and listen to it all the time thanks bye 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I've got to say that I, you know, I've received just a handful of either written or voicemail comments from, you know, I suppose Catholics generally, and they're really making me wonder what show they were listening to. I've just gotten a series of messages that are accusing either me or the contributors who are, who are featured on the shows about the Pope of saying things that I simply cannot find when I go back and look for them. And I'm sure if I need to be corrected, then someone will go and find it and let me know where it is. But I, I don't know where because, uh, you know, Jimmy Dore was far and away the most outlandish person saying the most extreme things. And I just went through, I listened to all of his clips and can't find uh, anywhere where he's uh, calling Catholics idiots or where he's saying that all Catholics are bigots or that all Catholics are intolerant or that all Catholics, uh, you know, approve of rape or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I've gotten messages saying that, you know, the, the views expressed on the show were themselves bigotry against Catholics. I've gotten messages saying that, you know, apparently the view of the show is that, uh, you know, rape is the only thing Catholics are capable of. <laughs> and I just, I don't even understand where this is coming from other than the sort of re- reflexive, defensive nature when, when whatever affiliation a person uh, is aligned with is is attacked or flaws are pointed out the the defense mechanisms come up and it becomes not really logical but instinctual so you know maybe that's what's going on but anyways uh, as as far as the the message i actually played on the show i really don't think that the analogy between staying in the church is like staying in america i don't think that holds up very well uh, but it's the analogy we have to work with so let's go with it for a second for the sake of argument let's say that it's like an sat test here with all the analogies. So if staying in the church during a sex abuse scandal is to staying in America during, say, like illegal wars or drone killing of innocent civilians uh, abroad, that sort of thing, then tithing is to paying taxes, obviously. And so then tithing to the Catholic Church supports systematic cover-ups of sex abuse, just as paying taxes in America supports drone strikes that kill civilians, right? So this is what Jimmy had to say about Catholics. It's not, of course, that they don't approve of what's going on. But if you stay and you continue to tithe to the church, then you're not condoning the actions, but you're tacitly uh, making yourself complicit in the system. And that's undeniable because the money that goes to the church is the money that's used to pay the people who shuffle the rapists around, you know, cover it up or pay lawyers to cover it up and so on. That's undeniable. And so, likewise, if you pay taxes in America, then you'd have to be culpable for some of the things we do uh, overseas that we don't agree with or, or that are downright horrible, right? And if you think that you know progressives wouldn't wouldn't say that, wouldn't say, well, oh, I'm, but I'm against it, so I'm not at, at fault. It this whole situation reminded me of a really interesting conversation that I want to play right now between Sam Cedar talking about. Uh, you know, taxes, foreign policy, and so on, with a libertarian caller of his. Check this out. Remember how during the election you said that anyone who voted independent or third party, if they ended up getting Romney elected and he ruined Social Security and Medicare, that would be on them? By your logic, people who voted for Obama and gave him the authority to continue his military policies have the culpability for that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think prior to the election, Jim, that I think that we all have culpability. I also pay taxes, which pay for those drones. Even though I voted against George Bush and agitated against George Bush, I also felt uh, culpable in the deaths of hundreds, uh, you know, at least tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians. Yes, I don't think you're innocent because you voted for Gary Johnson, if that's the question. Sam, taxes are taken by force, Sam. It's not a willing decision. Oh, really? Really? No, you have an option. You can go to prison. But I guess your freedom is more important than the lives of those Pakistanis. Is that what you're saying? Bullshit, Sam. I voted for the one candidate who wanted to end the war. Yeah, but you still pay your taxes, Jim. You have a choice. Actually, I've you have a choice. I've gotten refunds. I've gotten refunds for the last couple of years, so no. Oh, okay. Good for you. So, like I said, I think the analogy comparing staying in the Catholic Church to staying in America is a pretty weak one. It breaks down really quickly. You know, if you want to not uh, support 
the American foreign policy, as just discussed in that clip, you could not pay your taxes and get yourself arrested, of course. Or if you want to move and go to a new country, you know, you have to have an enormous amount of privilege and resources to actually do that. Uh, probably be hard to get a job over there wherever you go. And, uh, you know, wherever you end up, you, you probably end up getting deported back to America anyways after after a period. So it's a little bit more difficult than uh, just changing churches. And, you know, it was described as though Catholicism is the only religion that discusses Jesus. It's not like any of the other religions know about Jesus. It seems to me that it wouldn't be quite as difficult as moving out of the country as to find another religion in America that talks about Jesus and might even have a more progressive perspective on sex to boot. But with all that said, if we insist on using the analogy anyways, I still think we get inevitably to the point where we recognize that tithing to the Catholic Church makes you tacitly complicit with the system that is institutionally raping children and covering it up. That's just the fact of the institution and doesn't make me or any of the other commentators on this show bigoted by pointing it out. So that is going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned in between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to be. A dying man in a living room. Whose shadow bases the floor. Take you out.